Hello, it's Thursday 29th of September. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will be casting our travel net towards Northeast Asia as we assess the latest round of ease travel restrictions in Japan, Hong Kong and Taiwan. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, we're going to place in context the raft of reopening announcements late last week in Japan, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, and what they could mean for Southeast Asian travelers and the tourism industry in our region. We'll also stop over in China and Macau, and we'll finish the show amid the tranquil Himalayan beauty of Bhutan. So let's kick off. Let's begin in Japan, which took center stage with its reopening announcement late last week. We'll come to that in a moment. But Hannah, you were there when this happened. You were there in Japan in real time. So tell us more. Um, why exactly? Um, so I went to Japan. I think I was there for a few days um, already before the, the reopening announcement. So I think the reopening announcement came on Thursday evening, Japan time, and I'd already come in on the, the previous Saturday and it was a strange kind of time um you know the flight and I threw I, I flew an A350 from KL to Tokyo and Malaysia Airlines and it was pretty empty you know this is a 333 kind of configuration in an economy every single person could have a, their own road to themselves if they wanted you know from a passenger perspective great you can stretch out it's a fairly long flight from an airline perspective, I think that it really shows how how difficult it was to get in, despite it, you know, in theory, um, actually being open. So that was um, kind of interesting and, you know, waiting around. I, I arrived into Tokyo and then went straight to Hokkaido, to Sapporo. And I spent quite a bit of time hanging around Narita, Tokyo Narita Airport, and that was pretty empty, whether it was just that terminal, but I don't think so. Um, there really weren't a lot of people around, but the flight from Narita to Sapporo, so this domestic flight, was very busy. There were, you know, it, it was packed. I think pretty much every single seat was taken. So, you know, it's it's like what we have, you know, we're talking about with Kuramochi San not too long ago. That domestic is there and it is busy, but international is is really really lagging behind. Fascinating. So Hannah, come on, you got to tell us, what were you doing in Japan and what did you get up to? Yeah, great question. So I was visiting there on behalf of uh, the Adventure Travel Trade Association, ATTA, um, and I'm the regional director for Asia. And um, as our listeners might remember or might not from our interview with Kurumachi-san, next year we'll be holding the Adventure Travel World Summit in Hokkaido. So this meeting was, you know, one of these, we have a lot of partners in Japan and it was reconnecting with old faces and starting that preparation ahead of next year's summit. And it was so nice, you know, a lot of these people I'd never met, obviously. And actually I started in January. So up until that point, I'd not even met anybody from the company, <laughs> from ATTA even. Um, so just on on that person to person level, I think it made such a difference, you know, getting everybody into the same room together having dinner together, chatting. Um, and it was, it was all about that. It was about relationship building. Our um, CEO was talking at the Tourism Expo Japan's ministerial roundtable. Um, so it was 
pretty interesting. I mean, you had tourism ministers flying in from Jamaica. I think they had from um, Cambodia, from the Philippines, from South Africa as well. So there was a, a real mix of different people at this ministerial um, roundtable. And of course, I got to visit the Tourism Expo Japan as well. Um, and I, I love going to a good exhibition. I, I always get a thrill of seeing what destinations are being sold. So tell us a bit more about Tourism Expo Japan this year. I think it was the first time they've hosted it for two or three years. How big was it? How well attended was it? And who was from, who was there from Southeast Asia? Yeah, great question. So it was pretty busy. I mean, I would say it's, it's a four-day fair. And from what I understand, the first two days and the days that I visited were the trade days, so Thursday and Friday. Um, and then it's open on Saturday and Sunday and the general public can come in afterwards as well. So... It was a scaled down tourism expo. There's no doubt about it. A lot of people, you know, were saying actually it used to be a lot bigger than this, but it was still two big exhibition halls there, and it was pretty busy. You know, people were going around visiting, and in terms of Southeast Asia, we had a pretty strong um, representation there. So not only did just ASEAN have a stand there, which I thought was kind of interesting, but there was also Cambodia, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, Philippines thinking about it I think the only one who was perhaps not there I mean Laos um, but Vietnam wasn't there either which is is kind of interesting actually considering that Vietnam right now is one of the top source markets for Japan um, so presumably there is quite a lot of travel back and forward um, between the two and yeah it, it was it was um, fascinating as always to to go and see this i mean there were other destinations like jamaica for example that you know that that's not even on the radar in southeast asia there were destinations like egypt there and i think it really made me appreciate how much more mature i think in terms of outbound travel japanese travelers are um you know they have done if we, if we can say that, you know, some of the more mainstream destinations, I mean, Europe had a, a stand there, there were plenty of other European tourism boards, but there were plenty that were definitely not even really options um, in Southeast Asia that have no interest really in the Southeast Asian market. And that, that was quite interesting to see that, that different play on, on different popular destinations. Now, it's pretty interesting because you traveled to Japan during the first stage of its reopening while you were there, the sort of fuller um, reopening was actually announced. What, what was the travel planning process like? And, and while you were there, did you notice many foreign visitors? Yeah, I mean, it was really tough, actually. Um, so I was, you know, going in on a business trip. So I had to get a, a business visa. And it involved all sorts. It involved having to, you know, submit my passport details to business partner they have to then go and get the invitation letter and then you had to email to the Japanese embassy in Malaysia for an appointment slot which took three weeks to get just an appointment slot to go to the embassy um, and then give in the passport wait for five days come back and pick up the passport so it really wasn't an easy process given that you know it was in all but name kind of open and in terms of did I see other foreign visitors? I mean, definitely when I, you know, the first hotel we were staying in in Sapporo, there were very few. I, I, I don't want to say we were the only ones, perhaps the only Europeans there. Uh, there may well have been other Asian travelers who kind of blended in with the, the Japanese crowd, perhaps. But yeah, it was a bit of a rarity. And in at the Tourism Expo Japan, again, there weren't that many, um, you know, obviously foreign travelers there either a lot of them were uh, what 
I presume to be local Japanese or perhaps some of the exhibitors who were there, but it was very limited. So, you know, it's going to be fascinating to go back. I go back in November and um, see what the difference is, you know, in terms of the plane. Is that going to be full? You know, is it going to take longer to get through immigration and everything else? Yeah, it's, um, it's going to be interesting. And what's daily life like in Japan, Hannah? Did you have to use a health tracking app, masking, social distancing? You know, what should travelers be aware of if they're traveling to Japan in the coming weeks and months? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think coming from Malaysia, it didn't feel like too much of a jump. So they don't have uh, an app where you have to check in. I think perhaps they once did, but that, you know, was, was no longer live. Um, so it's pretty much just wearing a face mask everywhere. Uh, and it was quite funny. So whenever we would go and have a group photo, and we took a lot of group photos with our business partners, everybody would look at one another and kind of consensually agree, mask off, and everyone would take the mask off for the photo. <laughs> and then once the photo's taken, everyone would go and put the mask back on. So there is definitely that strong mask-wearing culture. But in terms of everything else, it felt pretty <laughs> new normal. You know, I, I can't say normal, right, because wearing a face mask everywhere isn't normal but it's what we're used to here in Southeast Asia so it didn't feel like too much of a big jump from what we've been experiencing here. That's fascinating it's great to hear your on the ground insights Hannah so we can now talk a little bit about what Japan actually announced as you said the opening of the Tourism Expo Japan was last Thursday but the actual announcement didn't come till the evening the the Prime Minister Fumio Kushida was in New York I think he was attending the UN General Assembly and it was him that announced Uh, the reopening which comes from 11th of October so that's in time for your next visit Hannah I think yeah thank goodness yes (laughs) we'll have to go back through that whole visa uh, rigmarole yeah I mean I thought it was super interesting actually that the the announcement came from New York given that the first I mean you would think that the first day of a a tourism conference (laughs) like Tourism Expo Japan would actually be the perfect place to um to announce a reopening right but um you know, there are a lot of government ministers there um, talking and saying, and this I found really fascinating. They were saying the media is reporting that Japan will open soon. <laughs> so they were quoting the media, which felt a bit funny at the time. And then, of course, this announcement came very late. I think something like 11 p.m. or even towards midnight um, Japan time. So it was really only the next morning people kind of started to talk about it. And, you know, some of the tour operators on the ground were a little bit hesitant, you know, a little bit skeptical. They, you know, said, well, I'll only get excited about it when it's actually, you know, really happening on 11th of October, when we're going to see all of these restrictions eased and people start coming in. And that kind of felt quite similar to that, that kind of, maybe not cynicism, but yeah, that, that caution, I think a lot of tourism stakeholders had here in Southeast Asia when things reopened too. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point, Hannah. I mean, I I wrote in my newsletter last week that now, what we saw last week, well, we'll come on to Hong Kong and Taiwan in a moment, but we can talk about Japan first, is that we saw this raft of announcements, reopening announcements, all coming at the same time. It was really, it did feel like Groundhog Day of what we went through last year, particularly when Singapore and Thailand launched their first, first sort of reopenings. You know, the news filters through and then everybody kind of wonders, well, what, what is this actually going to mean? How is this going to actually play out? I thought the one with Japan was quite interesting because they have given a bit of a lead time, haven't they? Actually, the reopening is on the 11th of October. So there is a bit of time for airlines or whoever's actually going to facilitate this reopening to, to get something in place. But it's going to take time, obviously. They've removed the quota, the cap on daily arrivals. Um, the travel is going to be visa free. So it is more or less a full reopening, which is quite exciting because, as we know, Japan is not just 
an important inbound destination for travelers in Southeast Asia and, and across Asia Pacific. It's an important outbound market as well. And it's a lead player in, in regional aviation. So the opening of Japan at the moment, I would say, is uh, it's probably a barometer of, of what we can hope for in, in the last quarter of this year and into next year. I think everybody will be watching Japan very, very closely. What do you think, Anna? Yeah, for sure. And I think what was quite interesting is up till now, they've had a very strict um, vaccination policy. So um, you had to be triple vaccinated. But crucially, especially for Southeast Asia, they weren't actually accepting Sinovac. Um, now that seems to be set to change and of course you know if you know you're looking at countries like china as well where you know chinese vaccines obviously are the main ones being used this is almost a play to get things in shape ready for the anticipated reopening to chinese travelers as well yeah and you referenced our interview with kuramochi san from the jnto a couple of weeks ago he said on this show that Japan has identified 22 priority markets to help it rebuild its visitor economy over the coming months. And as you said, Hannah, you know, the Southeast Asian countries that were there and that were present, you know, they will be vital markets for, for Japan's rebuild. Yeah, absolutely. So shall we move on to a different East Asian country? Yeah, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's move on to Taiwan. Now, this is, I guess, a little bit more in line with some of the reopenings we started to see in Southeast Asia right at the beginning. The headlines were in terms of removing quarantine, but actually what it does mean is that although quarantine is to be eliminated, there is still a testing to be done when you arrive. Uh, rapid uh, antigen tests must be taken on day zero uh, or day one. This, uh, as opposed to Hong Kong, would be the end of your further testing uh, if that if it's negative at that time, Hong Kong has much more testing uh, in place. It will have a, day, a weekly cap on arrivals, 150,000. Interesting, really. Taiwan, also an important inbound and outbound market. It's obviously a much smaller country than Japan. What we've started to see in the media this week, I think, is this burgeoning of interest in Northeast Asia. So Taiwan, Korea, and Japan. There's a lot of movement between the airlines trying to reanimate travel between those localized regional destinations. We will start to see more coming into Southeast Asia and out of Southeast Asia, I guess, but it's just a, a matter of distance, I suppose. They're, they're longer flights. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so like you said, yeah, it's it's got definitely got twinges of Southeast Asian uh, policies reopening, particularly with all of the testing. And so Gary, you just mentioned Hong Kong. Now. Do you want to give us the lowdown on uh, what this zero plus three scenario really is? Zero plus three, yeah. So zero obviously stands for quarantine. There is no more hotel quarantine when you arrive in Hong Kong. Um, but zero plus three is, it's, it's quite a complex thing because although there, there is no actual long-term uh, hotel quarantine, this is a bit like a, an extended version of test and go, which we saw in uh, Thailand about a year ago, I guess, the beginning of November last year. So when you arrive, you'll have to do a test, you'll have to do a PCR test, what is called day zero, that's your arrival day. And then you must stay in your hotel for three days until you get a clearance that your test was free. Now, during those three days, you can actually, you can go around the city, um, but you can't go to gyms, you can't go to bars, and you can't go to restaurants. For some reason, you can go to supermarkets, which seems a little bit strange. Once you've um, got clearance on your PCR test, your health code app, which you'll have to download before you go to Hong Kong, will turn from amber to blue. And that enables you on day four, full access to all venues and everywhere around Hong Kong. So essentially, although there's no actual quarantine per se, uh, you have got four days of very limited ability to travel around Hong Kong. 
you actually also then have to do other testing right up until day seven, which is actually day eight, because your arrival day is day zero. So Hannah, this is extremely complicated. Um, the South China Morning Post created a diagram. We'll put a link for that up onto our show notes, because when you do arrive, there is still a lot of testing to be done. Now, the travel industry, the media in Hong Kong is kind of saying that this is just an interim phase, that it probably won't last for too long. Interestingly, this does misalign it with what's happening in, in China and in Macau. So Hong Kong is sort of, I don't know whether you could say this is a testbed for what could happen perhaps in future in China. But at the moment, it's kind of sort of a limbo, really. It's open, but there are still restrictions on being able to travel there. Yeah, I mean, and you know, as we saw, the the more restrictions and the more complicated it is, then the, the fewer people who are actually going to make the effort to come in. It's, it's just going to be those people who really have to come in for business or maybe visiting friends and family, but the rest are not going to bother, are they? No, they're not. And I think it's, it's interesting that the media reaction always tends to be the same as it was a year ago. And you kind of think, well, what have we actually learned from a year ago? And the media has really been focusing on, you know, will this start bringing more people back to Hong Kong? Will this reanimate Hong Kong International Airport? But I was speaking to an investment analyst. He called me up the other day and and he was asking me about what I thought about this. I said, well, the important thing probably for the near future, as you said, Hannah, it's going to bring in uh, essential visitors, those that haven't seen friends and relatives for a long time, and also business travelers. But it's outbound. You know, a lot of people from Hong Kong haven't really been able to travel overseas because of these quarantine requirements. So I think it's going to have a strong boost for outbound travel because when you you go back now home, you won't have to do a, a mandatory quarantine. You can do that at home. Even if you have to do your testing, that's not quite so bad if you can do that from home. Um, but in terms of actual inbound visitors, you know, I don't think there's going to be much shift until those testing procedures are radically reduced. Yeah, absolutely. So shall we move to a nearby neighbour of Hong Kong, Macau? What's been happening there, Gary? Yeah, so Macau still has quarantine in place um, and it's focusing at the moment very much on the, the Chinese market. Macau said, I think it was last Saturday, that from the end of October, individual e-visas will start to be granted for uh, Chinese travellers who can travel to Macau quarantine-free. If you're going in from internationally, you still have to do a quarantine. Um, But I think most importantly for Macau, from November, it will remove the restriction on group travel from mainland China. And, you know, that's where the value is for Macau, because group travellers to Macau tend to be high spending. They can reanimate the, the economy, which has really been struggling since it went into lockdown. I think that was back in, what, June and July. Macau has really been struggling ever since. This is a selective reopening. Three mainland provinces, visitors from three provinces, Guangdong, Fujian and Jiangsu, uh, plus the city of Shanghai. That's going to be the initial testbed uh, for visitors back to Macau. So progress for Macau. I think the the city is looking towards the the last quarter of the year that it will see an uplift in visitors from the mainland. Um, But this isn't really focused on the international market, not yet. Mm, Yeah, but like you say, still a a step in the right direction, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Let's hit another East Asian destination then. So Korea, what's happened there, Gary? Nothing new there. South Korea removed the pre-departure flight test requirement on the 3rd of September. So if you're flying into South Korea, you don't have to take a test before you board the plane, um, but you do have to take a PCR test upon arrival within 24 hours of arriving. That's really the only requirement at the moment. So I know people who are in, in South Korea at the moment having a great time saying it's, it's easy to travel around. You can take your pick of tour operators and drivers. Um, you know, it, it, you've got relative freedom. Prices aren't too high at the moment. The Korean won, uh, like most currencies in Asia at the moment, is struggling a little bit. So 
yeah, South Korea is open. South Koreans are traveling also. I think there's expected to be quite a surge over the end of year, Christmas and New Year period. But, you know, I think the reanimation of travel between Korea, Japan, Taiwan and Hong Kong, of course, uh, is something that I think we can look forward to over the next few months because, you know, travel flows between those countries were very strong before. Uh, and, you know, they, they probably will be quite quickly. I think that's where we'll start to see the regrowth happen. So not quite East Asia, but it's a nice one to talk about anyway. Um, Bhutan. And of course, this has uh, just recently reopened on the, the 23rd of September, but with a slightly different tariff, right, Gary? Yeah, so Bhutan is, well, it's always been a quite a unique and a very interesting destination. You've been there, haven't you, Hannah? You can tell us what it was like when, when you travel. When, when did you visit Bhutan? Mm, I think I went in 2013, you know, a long, a long time ago now. But yeah, it was, it was great. It had this set amount per person for USD that you had to pay, which was expensive. You know, it wasn't a cheap holiday by any means. But, you know, it covered your hotel and your guides and your food and everything else. Once you were there, you didn't really have to pay much and it was amazing people were so friendly the scenery was just absolutely stunning but they've changed this fee now haven't they a little bit yeah so they reopened for travelers from the 23rd of september after the the pandemic and they've implemented a new 200 dollars per night per person fee called the sustainability development fee now this is pretty interesting this is for all travelers going into bhutan except for indian visitors there's a slightly different tariff for indian visitors and that $200 per night, as the name would suggest, a sustainability development fee is going to be allocated to projects that enhance facilities, services and infrastructure for Bhutanese nationals and visitors and will help fund free healthcare and education. So they're really using tourism revenue to help uh, rebuild, rebuild the economy, which is quite an interesting way to do this. There's a lot of uh, media talk about this, about whether other countries in the region can actually apply this to their own economies would be quite difficult because, you know, as we said, Hannah, Bhutan has always been like this. It, it, it's developed tourism through scarcity. It's had these high barriers, high financial barriers to, barriers to travel, and therefore it keeps uh, the volume of, of travelers low. And, and most other countries in our region, particularly if you look at countries like Thailand, uh, Indonesia, even Singapore, you know, they built their tourism industry around, around mass tourism, around mass numbers, big volumes. And that's going to be very, very difficult then to start implementing. Um, sustainable sustainability development fees. But I think there will be a lot of eyes on Bhutan because governments, tourism boards, we know everybody is having to, to rethink the impact of travel and tourism on the climate, on the environment, on those kinds of things. I mean, it's entirely possible that some other countries will appropriate part of this, but whether they'll do so successfully, I guess we'll have to wait and see. What, what do you think? Yeah, exactly. And like you said, you know, Bhutan has always been different. They've always had this kind of thing in place, this, this tariff the difference now is that they have increased that by quite a bit. So it will be interesting to see, you know, does that put off tourists from visiting or are they still coming? And, you know, if they are still coming, I think you're right, Gary. I think a lot of other governments around will really um, will be looking at that very closely to see other applications for them. Maybe, maybe not for the whole destination, right? It could just be on a you know, specific island basis. You know, we've seen Komodo Islands looking at um, increasing its fee. Um, so I think definitely there's going to be this eye on if travelers are still coming, and then what does that mean um, for them? Yeah, I agree. And it, it's not the first. I mean, New Zealand introduced its tourism and conservation fee, I think, about three years ago. It's nowhere near as high as US $200 per night, as in Bhutan. It's a flat fee when you arrive. And, you know, that money is poured back into community projects, uh, environmental projects in New Zealand. 
that's possibly something more that countries in our region will be looking at a, a flat fee rather than a per night fee because I just don't think it will be it'll be viable in many countries in Southeast Asia. But you know, I think these models we will start to see more not just more discussion but possible implementation. Thailand is saying is you know you mentioned that that it's going to introduce a tourist fee. But it's kind of unclear what what the purpose of that is. Yeah, I think times are going to change. I think 2023 will we'll definitely see a lot more movement on tourism prices. And so all of those countries, you know, we talked about Korea, Taiwan, Japan, Hong Kong, Macau, really the only one that's left now that doesn't seem to be making much progress is China. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. I, I don't think we can expect anything until, you know, the, uh, the 20th Party Congress, which, which kicks off on the 16th. Of October, we're not going to hear any reopening announcements until at least then. Will we hear anything after that? It's 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 really very difficult to know. I think the interesting thing about China is two things. You know, you read in, in some media analysts saying now the pressure is on that everybody else has reopened and China isn't. I, I don't really think the Chinese government cares too much about that. What they do definitely care about is the impact that it's having on their economy. Uh, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Um, and the growth projections this week from the World Bank and I think last week from the Asian Development Bank show that growth in China this year will be much, much lower than was even predicted a year ago. So the impact in China of economic downturn, of the falling price of the yuan, higher unemployment and particularly problems and crisis, I guess you have in its real estate economy, show that you know travel and tourism is potentially uh, a way to bring back more investment, to get the airlines flying again. Uh, to get more inbound travel. Yeah, it's something that, you know, most most economies in our region and in Northeast Asia are now realizing there comes a point where borders closed actually have such a long-term impact and that cumulative impact just gets worse. You, you have to hope that China thinks that way, but at the moment it's very difficult to say. Yeah, absolutely. And those are all the countries that are reopening and this is the Southeast Asia travel show, not the <laughs> North Asia travel show. And why it's important to know what is happening with North Asia. It's just because, like Gary, you mentioned, those flows between Southeast Asia and North Asia are so so essential to the recovery of aviation industry, of the tourism industry um, at large. So I had a few stats um, from OAG, and this is based on um, share of total seats from July 2019. Um, and so China to Bangkok to Varnabhumi represented almost 14% of all seats Hong Kong was 6% of that. Japan was around 6% as well. Those are the top three destinations into Thailand. Therefore, you know, without those flights flying, you're not going to see that full tourism recovery in Thailand. We're very much everyone is interlinked here. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the most notable thing between the two regions over the past two and a half years is this kind of decoupling that we've seen of the aviation economies. You say that, Hannah, absolutely right, that the flows inbound and outbound from Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia were very, very vital. And you notice that the OAG publishes weekly uh, figures about the recovery rates of all regions around the world. And for, for quite a long time now, Southeast Asia's scheduled air capacity has been around 30% down uh, on what it would have been in the same time in 2019. And that 30% is mostly made up of Northeast Asian traffic and particularly Chinese traffic. So now that Japan is back open, now there's going to be more travel back and forth, more particularly into from Hong Kong, uh, South Korea and Taiwan as well. You know, you will start to see more capacity being rebuilt. Although I would have to say, as you've you experienced, Hannah, on your flight, 
to Japan is that airlines are much more cautious than they were before, and they will only really rebuild the capacity when they see that there's demand. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, the the cost of oil and everything else, manpower issues, has really made airlines a lot more cautious about restoring that capacity, like we keep saying. Um, so it's that age-old story, you know, just because a country has reopened doesn't mean that things are going to instantly bounce back, doesn't mean that airlines are going to instantly reopen flights to them either. It's going to be that gradual process. And just to finish off, Hannah, one of the reasons that those uh, destinations were at Tourism Expo Japan from our region is because Japan was such a, a prolific provider of travelers to our region back in 2019 that we pulled out the top five recipients in our region of Japanese visitors in 2019. Read through the list, Hannah. Yeah, so I mean, Thailand saw 1.8 million Japanese visitors in 2019. Vietnam, 950,000. Singapore, close to 900,000. Philippines, close to 700,000. And Indonesia, 500,000. So these are really significant numbers. And, you know, it isn't just the Chinese market that they're waiting for. They're waiting for the other East Asian markets to come too. And like you said, Gary, you know, a lot of these countries and the borders, the, the focus is on what's that impact on their inbound travel. But actually, whatever impact it has on its inbound travel, it also has an impact on the outbound travelers as well and their, their willingness to travel overseas and how complicated it will be when they come home. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. Now, Hannah, you're off traveling again. I know. I'm off to Switzerland tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, mixed, mixed feelings, but excited to be going back to Europe for sure. And you're going to a very beautiful place. Right, beautiful place. The chocolate, the cheese. Yeah, I can't wait. Have a great trip. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today. We'll be back to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you soon. We look forward to talking to you then. Mm-hmm.